Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Jesus Does Dinner, Food for Thought for Guests and Hosts, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 2nd, 2007. For some reason, books about food have become the rage of bestseller lists. In The Omnivore's Dilemma, Michael Pollan explores what he calls, quote, our national eating disorder, end quote, by tracking food from its origin all the way to our dinner plate. More recently, in Animal, Vegetable, Miracle, Barbara Kingsolver recounts how her family ate only homegrown or locally produced food for one year. Both books have enjoyed a long ride on the bestseller lists. I'd guess that most acquisition editors don't bet that books about food will become runaway bestsellers. What Poland and Kingsolver tap into, though, I think, is the reality that there's far more to food than buying organic, joining the slow food movement, going vegan, or bicycling to your farmer's market with a denim bag. Food is more than nutrition. Where you eat, what you eat, how much or how little you eat, when you eat, and who you eat with all say something about your identity in the community you keep. In a review of the book Feast, A History of Grand Eating, Ingrid Rowland notes how throughout history, food has often been what she calls, quote, the all-sufficient metaphor for power, end quote. In her book, Bird by Bird, Anne Lamott describes the daily rite of passage we all endured, the school lunch. Remember? School lunches, says Lamott, quote, only looked like a bunch of kids eating lunch but it was really about opening our insides in front of everyone. The contents of your lunch said whether or not you and your family were okay. Some bag lunches, like some people, were okay, and some weren't. There was a code, a right and acceptable way. It was that simple. If code lunches were about that intense desire for one thing in life to be okay, or even just to appear to be okay, when all around you and at home and inside you things were so chaotic and painful, then it mattered that it not look like Jughead had wrapped your sandwich. A code lunch suggested that someone in your family was paying attention, even if in your heart you knew your parents were screwing up right and left. End quote. Food plays a conspicuous role in the Bible's story of redemption. Jews celebrate liberation from Egypt with a Passover meal. Many of their 613 misfought or commandments deal with dietary restrictions. In the Gospels, John says that Jesus' first miracle was to turn water to wine at a wedding party at Cana of Galilee. Then there are the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, and the Great Supper, which is a metaphor for eternal life. There are stories about feeding the multitudes, whether it's okay to eat with dirty utensils, 
food production, farming, arguments about abstaining from food and fasting, which foods are ritually clean or unclean, and why, whether a Christian could eat meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols and then afterwards sold in the market, and then the poor begging crumbs from the rich. Luke's gospel for this week in Luke chapter 14 is only one of several stories that Jesus told in which he used food as a metaphor for a sort of power that could build or destroy human community. Sometimes Jesus ate with the fringe crowd, the riffraff, so much so that his detractors disparaged him as a glutton and a drunkard, Luke 7.34. For the religiously zealous and scrupulous person of that day, to eat with a so-called dirty person defiled you and made you impure. But Jesus also ate with these same religiously scrupulous and socially powerful people. And that's where the gospel for this week finds him. He was eating dinner with a prominent Pharisee when he noticed something about the guests and then something about the hosts in Luke chapter 14, verses 7 to 14. The guests at the party clamored for what Jesus called places of honor at the table. To insinuate ourselves into places of importance, to wheedle a prestigious invitation, to be seen at the right eatery with the right colleagues is what we are often inclined to do. It's entirely human. When I was in Oxford in late fall of 2002, I regularly attended the beautiful service called Evensong. On my first night at Maudlin College Chapel, founded in 1448, I learned my lesson. Do not, under any circumstances, even think about sitting in the back row reserved for the professors. Those are prestigious seats for important people. And never mind that the church was empty except for the boys' choir and a few tourists like me. Whether it's sitting in the skybox at the football game or at courtside at the basketball game, we confuse a powerful social location with an authentic personal identity. Just as school children long to demonstrate through their bag lunch that they are okay, Adults want to demonstrate by their social location at a table that they are not only okay, but they're important and powerful. And so Jesus warned the dinner guests, be careful where you sit. It might reveal more about yourself than you would care to know. Then Jesus turned from the guests to the hosts and observed what we might call the law of reciprocity. When you throw a dinner party, you tend to invite those whom you most enjoy, those whose presence in your house might flatter you. In fact, said Jesus, there's a decent chance these people will reciprocate and invite you to their party, which is exactly what we hope for. But to those hosts, Jesus also turned the tables. He replaced those whom we would most likely invite your friends, your brothers, relatives, or your rich neighbors, Luke 14, 12, with those whom we would least likely invite, 
the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Luke 14, verse 13. Jesus warned the hosts, be careful about your invitation list. Like your seating preferences, it also says something about your deepest identity. And so Jesus warned both the guests and the hosts, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14.11 Commenting on this passage from Luke, William Williman, former professor and dean of the chapel at Duke University for almost 30 years, observed, quote, There's a warning here about the advent of a kingdom where those who are full and content and on top get dislodged, end quote. I was reminded of Luke's parable when I was in Uganda in 2004. In a village outside of Tororo, our group was feeded by a duo who between the two of them lived the life of all four people that Jesus mentioned. Both of them were poor, one of them was blind, and the other person was lame and crippled. And yet they sang to us songs of appreciation, complete with our own personal names, and threw the best party with the best food they had. In this instance, as is also the case in the Gospels, food was a metaphor not of power, envy, and social posturing, but of joyful celebration of the God who exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. When my friend's daughter, Lisa, got married, they wanted to have their entire church attend the wedding, but budgetary constraints prohibited that. Instead, after the service, they had the local police block off the main street in downtown Waco, Texas. Guests danced in the streets and enjoyed refreshments from a Baskin-Robbins ice cream cart. The gazebo in the concrete part next to the theater sheltered the wedding cake. Lisa's husband, Chris, had made friends with a number of homeless men who lived under a bridge. As the pastor of the church, Chris would employ these men for odd jobs at his church. Coyote, the leader of his homeless friends, came to the wedding in his usual attire of jeans with holes in the knees, a scraggly beard, and unwashed hair. He organized his friends to clean up the streets after the wedding then sat on the curb with a big smile and smoked a cigar. Another guest was Lisa's next-door African-American neighbor. The little girl loved to spend time with Lisa and really wanted to come to the wedding. So the mother, the daughter, and the grandfather all came. The 70-year-old grandfather was soon the center of attraction as he went out on the street and danced to the music. Soon the college girls were vying to dance with him. As passers-by strolled by and inquired about what was happening, they too were invited to the wedding. There were guests dressed in their nicest clothes, alongside guests who wouldn't feel at home at a formal occasion. But however they dressed, on this occasion, every person felt welcomed as an honored guest just as God himself welcomes you and me and invites us to welcome each other. 
and for further reflection. Consider the epistle for this week from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Number two, in what way is the Lord's Supper a sign of the kingdom of God? Number three, should the Lord's Supper be offered to all people without conditions or limited to some people? Consider this, whereas in the West we have an epidemic of obesity, about half of the world, three billion people, live with what the United Nations calls a food deficit. And finally, see the book by Sarah Miles, Take This Bread. In the films, Supersize Me and Fast Food Nation. For books this week, I review Beverly Lowry, Harriet Tubman, A Biography, New York, Doubleday, 2007, 418 pages. After any number of biographies about Harriet Tubman, who lived from 1822 to 1913, most of which have been aimed at adolescence, Beverly Lowry's new work takes its place among two other recent biographies. First, Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom in 2004 by Catherine Clinton, and then secondly, Kate Larson's Bound for the Promised Land, Harriet Tubman, Portrait of an American Hero, also in 2004. Harriet, Harriet Tubman looms large as one of our country's greatest and most inspirational heroes. She's also a biographer's nightmare. Tubman was born as one of nine siblings into a Maryland slave family. She never learned to read or write, and reliable documents about her, especially her early years, are sketchy to non-existent. Thus, in her author's note at the beginning of the book, Lowry describes her work as, quote, the story of a life as I have reimagined it, end quote. She tries to avoid what she calls weaselly qualifiers about Tubman, rather unsuccessfully, in my opinion, but one can hardly fault her given the subject. Born Araminta Ross, Tubman was rented out as a slave when she was about six years old. She later escaped to the North at age 27, then, defying all odds, made as many as 19 return trips back into slaveholding territories in order to rescue as many th as 300 other slaves. She also served in the Civil War as a spy, nurse, and armed soldier. About a year after her death in 1914, a bronze tablet was laid at her home in the central New York town of Auburn, where she lived for 40 years, which includes her own description of her life work. Quote, on my underground railroad, I never run off de track, and I never lost a passenger, end quote. Stubborn and stoic, dignified and determined, it's hard to fathom the bravery and brilliance it must have taken to do what Harriet Tubman did. 
Tubman saw visions, heard the voice of God, and dreamed dreams as a truly fearless woman of faith. She also suffered from acute narcolepsy. By the time she died, she was famous, which left me wondering why Lowry ends her biography in 1868 when Tubman still had another 45 years to, left, to live. At any rate, her book includes 62 photos, illustrations, and maps, along with extensive bibliographical sources for further study. Beverly Lowry, Harriet Tubman, A Biography. New York, Doubleday, 2007. For film this week, I review Battleground, 21 Days on the Empire's Edge, from the year 2003. With the war now in its fifth year, it's fascinating to watch this documentary of the Iraq War that was filmed in October 2003, about six months after the fall of Baghdad. Guerrilla News Network sent a crew of two brave souls into the Arab street to provide an alternative news version. Quote, it will be a real bloody civil war, end quote, predicted one Iraqi four years ago. For the most part, the film tries to allow all sides to tell their stories, including foreign journalists, local Iraqi families, American soldiers, a Baghdad blogger, and in one remarkable instance, an anti-sodomist American who returned to Iraq for the first time in 13 years. Overall, this film impressed upon me the stupidity, the hubris, the futility, and violence of war. Consider Camp Anaconda, built for $44 million as what the military calls a, quote, enduring presence facility, capable of housing 15,000 troops on a long-term residential basis. Or consider a tank graveyard where radiation levels are 300 times normal because of the presence of depleted uranium from American bombs. In October 2003, there were already about 120 tons of the depleted uranium in Iraq, it has a half-life of 4.5 billion years. And so these pictures in this film speak far more than any words. Battleground, 21 days on the empire's edge. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem called The Carpenter by George MacDonald. George MacDonald lived from 1824 to 1905. The Carpenter. O Lord, at Joseph's humble bench, thy hands did handle saw and plane. Thy hammer nails did drive and clench, avoiding knot and humoring grain. That thou didst seem, thou wast indeed. In sport thy tools thou didst not use, nor helping hinds or fishers need, the laborers hire, too nice refuse. Lord, might I be, but as I saw, 
a plane, a chisel in thy hand. No, Lord, I take it back in awe. Such prayer for me is far too grand. I pray, O Master, let me lie as on thy bench the favored wood. Thy saw, thy plane, thy chisel ply and work me into something good. No, no, ambition, holy high, urges for more than both to pray. Come in, O gracious force, I cry. O workman, share my shed of clay. Then I, at bench or desk or oar, with knife or needle, voice or pen, as thou in Nazareth of yore shall do the Father's will again. Thus fashioning a workman rare, O Master, this shall be thy fee. Home to thy Father thou shalt bear another child made like to thee. The Carpenter by George MacDonald Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September the 7th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.